Welcome to Israel from the Inside, where we try to break out of the echo chamber, surfacing the wide array of often conflicting viewpoints that make up the mosaic of Israeli life. I'm Daniel Gordas of Shalem College in Jerusalem. Go to danielgordas.substack.com where you can subscribe to these podcasts and join our community of listeners and readers, access the archive of all these episodes, and post comments, interacting with others who share your interest in Zionism, Israel, and the future of the Jewish state. I don't usually begin these podcasts with a little story, but this time I feel that I have to. It's kind of a corona story. When Israel was not in absolute lockdown, but in pretty close to it, we were still allowed to have meetings of groups of people that wanted to pray together on Shabbat, even on weekdays, outside. And uh, after a while in the middle of Corona, my wife and I started to join a very early morning minion at 7.30 in the morning on Shabbat, which we liked because it was very sparsely populated. We were being very careful during Corona and really just didn't want to be with a large group of people. So this was a group of, oh, 10, 15, maybe 20 people maximally who were davening outside. And we even took our chairs and put them further back, farther away from everyone uh, with masks outside the whole shebang. And there was this guy running the minion who just could not have been nicer to us. He was much younger than us, but he, he understood that we didn't want to go to the front. He understood that I didn't want an aliyah. I didn't want to stand next to anybody who was reading the Torah. I, didn't wanna, I just wanted to be left alone to do my thing and go home without touching anything or talking to anyone. He just could not have been nicer, more understanding. And after a couple of weeks of this, when he was really extraordinary, uh, I wanted to write him a little note on WhatsApp just to thank him for being such a great guy. So I had to ask around and said, who's that guy who's running this morning minion? And someone said, oh, that's Michael Menken. And I can give you his phone number so you can send him a WhatsApp. And I did a complete, wow, because Michael Menken is one of the early founders of Breaking the Silence, a very highly controversial organization in Israel, of which I've periodically been quite critical myself. And if someone had said to me, I want to introduce you to this guy who used to run Breaking the Silence, I would have thought to myself, really? I mean, I need to meet this guy. Um, but I met him, of course, not knowing who he was and was able, just because of our shared interest in being in shul on Shabbat morning, to encounter him as a Jew, as a human being, having no idea what his political orientation was. And I thought to myself, wow, if not knowing who he was enabled me to meet him in a different kind of a way, then that's exactly what this podcast series is all about, right? It's about breaking the echo chamber. It's about listening to people that we don't agree with and meeting them anew, learning to think anew. So I reached out to Michael, asked him if he would be willing to have a conversation about breaking the silence. He was more than willing. And what you're going to hear now is our conversation in which I think what comes across is a fascinating, complex nuanced human being who, no matter where you are on the political spectrum, is going to say things that you had never thought of before and is going to say things that are going to leave you thinking for quite some time. Here's Michael. So Michael, I am sitting with Michael Menken uh, at Shalem College. Today is June 15th, 2021. 
Uh, Michael uh, has had a lot of very interesting roles in Israeli society in a variety of organizations, and we're going to talk today mostly about your involvement in Shovrim Shtika, Breaking the Silence as it's known in English. Uh, but before we get into that, first of all, thank you very much for taking the time to have a chat. Oh, thank you. And uh, Mazel Tov on the appearance of your new book, which is called in Hebrew, Atchalta, which is for people that know sort of the reference, it's Atchalta de Geula, which is kind of the first, first comings of... Right. Mes- the dawn of redemption. The dawn of redemption, very nice. And I've, I've started it. It's fabulous. You write beautifully. Thank so you. wish you a lot of success with the book. And uh, so we're going to talk about Shofrim Shtika, Breaking the Silence, which you were very involved with for a while. I know you haven't been involved in a long time, but we'll talk about those years. Uh, but why don't you just give our listeners a quick background where you grew up, how you, you know, what your, your story and how you got to Shofrim Shtika, then we'll pick it up. Sure. So, hi, uh, my name is Michael. I'm 42. I live in Jerusalem uh, with my wife and three children. Um, I grew up... Um, both in Israel and abroad. My dad's American, uh, my mom's Israeli. We sort of moved back and forth based on their career choices. So I got a bit of both worlds uh, and pretty much lived that way. I think we settled here when I was around high school, uh, got, out of, uh, got out of high school in 97, went to yeshiva called Malay Gilboa, um, and then got drafted into the military in 98. Uh, spent four years in the army. So I was an officer in the military uh, in a unit called Golani, which is an infantry unit. I still am, by the way, in, in, in the reserves. When you sign on as an officer in age 18, you don't know that you're going to be doing it <laughs> until you're 45. Uh, but I'm still, uh, I'm still in the system. Um, got out of the army in 2002, so I spent most of my military uh, in basically two very, very different um, sort of political military universes, the first half in southern Lebanon. Uh, when Israel was still in southern Lebanon. Uh, we withdrew from Lebanon in 2000, and a couple of months later, I already found myself uh, in the territories. Uh, yeah, got out of the military in 2002. In 2004, Breaking the Silence started, and I got involved in that, and we'll probably talk about that soon. But pretty much since then, I've been involved in um, in the same type of world, which is, I would say, sort of a very Israeli perspective of uh, reflections and dealing with the question of Jewish um, rule. Uh, what does that mean on a practical level vis-a-vis Palestinians? Jewish rule over other people. Over other people, right. Because I think that's one of the most, I think, interesting questions. I mean, also both, uh, you know, also in terms of just operatively, what does it mean to be in power, but also what, it mean, what does it mean to be in power when you're stronger than others, uh, what does that mean in terms of our relationship with Arabs and on a lot of different fronts? So Breaking the Silence was really the first step into that world. I got out of Breaking the Silence. I ran the organization uh, from 2006 till around 2010. Um, since then, just for the brief bio, I helped found a think tank, which I ran uh, for a couple of years called Molad. Um, and, then, uh, and then in the last couple of years, I've been running a project uh, called the Alliance, which is really an, an attempt to build a political network of Jews coming from, I guess, equality-seeking the- backgrounds. You know, all the words are loaded, so let's leave it at that, and Arabs, citizens of Israel as well. So we're trying to think about the relationship between Jews and Arabs uh, within the country, which is becoming a sort of a hot political issue, uh, but I think really interesting in, in the strategic sense as well. So that's, that's what I do, very yeah. happily. <laughs> And I mentioned your book before, but I should have said what the subtitle is. So the subtitle in Hebrew is Musar Masoret Beidan Shalkoach Yehudi, 
which is basically ethics and tradition in a time of Jewish power. Right. So that's, again, the book yeah. is really about these exact issues. And I'll, and I'll add into everything that I said, because we can't see each other in a podcast, and I'm, I'm an Orthodox Jew, uh, and that very much uh, informs my politics. So I think um, I am of those stream of political Jews who are interested in the language of Judaism in the realm of politics. Uh, so it's, yes, it's very much in that world as well, and in a way it always has been. Uh, so, and again, Breaking the Silence was the first step into that, um, but I've, I've always been really interested in those questions. So, okay, great. So let's go back to 2005, 2006, when you're getting sure. involved in Breaking the Silence, take over the organization, run it for a few years. Before we talk more about the organization itself, which obviously is a controversial organization yes. <laughs> in Israel, among American Jews, I think it's less controversial in Europe. It's more embraced in Europe, but we'll yeah. talk about that. Uh, but it's obviously a very controversial, a very controversial subject. And as most of our listeners probably know, the whole idea of this podcast series is what I call breaking out of the echo chamber. We all tend to listen to people that we agree with. So if we're on one side of the political spectrum, that's who we listen to. If we're on one side of the religious spectrum, that's who we would listen to and vice versa. And it just seems to me that that's, of course, anathema to a Jewish way of thinking about the world. The Talmud is 2,700 pages of <laughs> conflicting opinions that we study all of those opinions day by day. Um, and so it seemed to me that even before this latest round of violence with Hamas, what we really needed to do as a Jewish people is stop listening to ourselves mm. and listen to other people. So it's, in, it's precisely the fact that breaking the silence is actually controversial that makes you a perfect fit for this yeah. series. So <laughs> sure. let's go back to 2005, 2006 as you're getting involved with the organization. If someone had said to you, okay, it's 2005, in 15 years, it's going to be 2020. What would you like to see happen in Israel by 2020 that would tell you that this organization has been successful? So that's a great question because it also just shows that sort of also the naivete of, uh, of folks just getting out of the military. I think our, my basic assumption, um, which I think is also, is, is, I mean, obviously naive, but also incredibly optimistic, was just that um, people don't know. And if people just knew uh, what's happening in our name and so on and so forth, if people just knew what, what are the human aspects of, a, of one person controlling military, another person, if they, if they felt what I, what I experienced, then yeah, we would get out of the territory. <laughs> so I think, I think the assumption uh, was that this is that, you know, military occupation is a temporary um, event. And um, and uh, and we are a push in that direction of 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 stopping to control people militarily by explaining the human moral aspects of what it means to of, of what military domination and day to day rule means. And just as I'm saying it and 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 hearing how incredible incredibly naive and optimistic that is, it is worth mentioning. I think. That a lot of Israelis saw that in 2004. I mean, even though, or 2005, even though we were, you know, at the end of a second intifada, it's also only four or five years after, you know, a peace process. So people were still in that mode of thinking. And it's also around the time of the disengagement of Gaza. So, you know, we were pulling out of territories at that time. So I think there was uh, a more sort of, you know, um, uh, this experience, this idea of, 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 of the temporary nature of military rule was was still there. I think that's very very different today. Um, but I think that was the assumption. I say that it's naive because I think um, uh, 
Um, maybe sadly, I don't know, but uh, moral argumentation is incredibly important. It's also the, the, the one that interests me on a professional level, but it's obviously not the only argumentation that's around. And, and I think very quickly understand that there's a lot of sets of, of values and interests and, and how do you get things done, which, which come into the conversation. So I would say as time developed and breaking the silence, uh, I would say that we understood that we're playing a role in presenting another aspect and not, you know, the sole aspect. Um, maybe I would also add that we were, it was, a, it was highly personal for us. So we were... Um, well, let me say just a tiny little bit for those people who don't know. Sure. What did the organization do? I mean, it allowed soldiers to tell stories of their experiences. Yeah. So how did they do that? Where were so the stories told? And I also think Israel was, the world in Israel was very, very different um, in the sense that there's no social media. So... Uh, Breaking the Silence started as a photo exhibit of soldiers in the Knesset. Uh, and, 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 and you can still read sort of the, you know, uh, the conversations because it's all, it's all printed out. The conversation, I think in, it was in the education um, ministry there was a, or, or, you know, um, in Knesset, uh, had a conversation about the testimonies. But the organization uh, had two roles when I was there. Um, the first was, uh, and I think still does, uh, the first was to collect and publish testimonies um, of, um, I would say, various different types of uh, abuse. Um, abuse committed by Israeli by soldiers. By Israeli soldiers. Of Palestinians. Uh, of Palestinians. Uh, but I, I say various different types because ones which are allowed and ones which aren't, aren't allowed by the military. Uh, the ones, by the way, which interest me more were the ones which are allowed, not the ones which are sort of extraordinary cases. But those um, are the ones that got more press, probably. Yeah, the extraordinary cases always got more press. Um, the, the ones which are just basically an explanation of what's happening and less. But from my perspective, th- those were always more interested. And the second thing was, was education, which, again, I think still sap- happens, also gets much less press, which is Breaking the Science does a lot of work with pre-military academies, with... Um, 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 with uh, uh, people who are coming from youth movements, that kind of thing. Uh, so a lot of that. Um, I would also say in the first years, did a lot of work with the military. And what's interesting and maybe not talked about is if, I th- if there's one um, organization which changed tremendously due to breaking the silence, and I don't think anybody wants to say this, but it's the military itself. So the military changed, I think, uh, categorically, in terms of the way it operates in the territories, because of you, because of testimonies and breaking the silence, so it changed for the better. Well, that's a question, you know, because um, somebody more uh, cynical will say, well, they basically use those testimonies to understand where the problems are and to occupy, I would say, more professionally but also more permanently. And somebody else could say, make the counterargument, which is, if you're already occupying. It's better to do it more humanely. And it really, I think, is a question which is both answers are correct. Um, so you think that as much as you're opposed to it, and I totally understand that, that in some kind of, I mean, this sounds crazy terminology, but you're arguing that because of your work, in some ways, the occupation has become more humane. Yeah, and I also don't think, I mean... Uh, it doesn't I make th- occupation less problematic, but the actual activity of soldiers you think is less problematic than well i think to a, i think to a point because break i think that was true to a point and i think we're seeing a pull to other directions 
Uh, you know, there was this case of Elora Zaria a couple of years ago. But I wanted to come back to him because Bogi Alon was actually highly critical of that soldier. Right. But he was also highly critical of breaking the silence. Yes. So we'll come back to Bogi and Elora Zaria. So, so I think it's, I think it's it, it, this is one of the problem. This is one of the challenges with the organization, which it was always highly controversial, and we were always aware that it was highly controversial, and and I think even enjoyed. To, to an extent, I mean, again, this is sort of a very sort of like post-military chutzpah type of, you know, let's get everybody upset kind of thing. And it's also an organization of people, you know, in their early 20s. Right, <laughs> so that's a combination that, of being young yeah, and Israeli. Exactly. So it's very much in that line. But also, I think, you know, it, the conversation gets pulled to a lot of different directions. Um, today, I would say from sort of uh, in hindsight, I am more uh, sort of um, positive about the influence on the military, even with understanding of the critique saying this makes it more permanent. And that's because I don't accept the argument that it needs to get worse in order to get better, um, because usually it's not worse for you, it's worse for other people. And secondly, because it, if, you know, when things are better, you have more options. Um, so, and if you already have a, a checkpoint, I'd rather have a soldier behave properly. And the, um, the publicity of breaking the silence allowed the military to say we have a problem uh, which we need to deal with. I think it changed the checkpoint structure. I think it changed uh, the education process that soldiers go through. And, and, and yeah, I used to be more um, uh, cynical towards that. I think today I'm much more um, open to understanding that that's actually pretty important. Uh, that's a huge contribution. Yeah, right. for sure, for sure. Okay, so let's talk about just a little bit, because um, a lot of our listeners, probably the ones who are familiar with Breaking the Silence, yeah. or there have to be people among them um, who are, let's say, not huge fans. Let's just put it that <laughs> Fair way. enough. And I think that there's probably two or three primary objections, and I'm just going to put them out there, and let's just talk about them quickly one, one by one. Okay, so sure. the first one would be that a lot of people did subtract and said that not all the stories that Breaking the Silence made public had either been entirely fact-checked, some were exaggerated, some were reported by soldiers, but they hadn't actually personally been there. And and, and a lot of the fairer journalists said, yeah. and at the same time, we found a lot of stories that were true. In other words, right. we're not saying that this is a bunch, a pack of lies, yeah. to quote the name of the play, uh, but there was stuff there that wasn't as critically fact-checked as it needed to be. So we'll come back to that yeah. one. A second one, I think, would be the whole question of European funding, European Union funding. Sure. Some people would throw the New Israel fund yeah. funding into that. Also arguing this is kind of just people that were sort of hostile to Israel in one way, shape, manner, or form. Right. And then the third one, which is actually the one that I personally resonated to most when Breaking the Silence was more of a, a daily conversation among people, <laughs> was the question of airing the dirty laundry, for example, in exhibits like in Madrid or wherever. Where you, in other words, yeah. we already have enough problems among the Europeans and now among American Jews. Is it a good thing or a bad thing for the Jewish state? Forget talking about the discourse inside Israel, where obviously it's important yeah. in a democracy. People talk about everything in every direction. But is it? how do we feel about taking this very complicated, very painful story in an era in which Israel's being marginalized anyway, at yeah. best, and then airing this dirty laundry out there? But let's come back to that last. So let's okay. do the, 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 <laughs> the, the fact-checking veracity issue first, then the funding, and then the airing of the dirty laundry. Right. And it's also worth mentioning, I think, that all those... All those arguments are, I think one of the reasons of Breaking the Silence is, is a con con controversial organization is because those are sort of controversial topics and I can give sort of a take on them. But in the spirit also of this podcast, I, I really also understand sort of the challenges to it. Um, um, but we'll get back to that maybe in the end. So regarding verifying the, the, um, the information, um, 
I don't know what the situation is today, um, but I think it's it's fair to say that um, that even in in the cases which were sort of attacked publicly, uh, and there are th- breaking the silence has collected thousands of thousands of testimonies at this point, so we're talking about a mass number of testimonies. Um, there still hasn't been a case which has been clear-cut breaking the silence was wrong on. That being said, and it's very important for me, that being said, I don't view breaking the silence, I never did, not as a um, human rights organization and not as a media organization. You viewed it as what kind of organization? I, I viewed it as an organization of soldiers who are telling the stories of other soldiers. And I know that's, that's sort of a soft answer, but our th- and before we get to how we actually operated on that premise... Our understanding was we have a role to play as ex-combatants, both to present our voice and to the pr- present the voice of comrades or people who we know fought and so on. And who are you trying to serve? In, in what Somebody sense? wakes up in the middle of the night, you're running, you're running Breaking the Silence in 2007, just out of the blue. Yeah. So you're doing all this work. You're working like a dog. You're Israeli public. Women. You're trying to serve the Israeli I public. I would even say Israeli public who are on the fence. Uh, Israeli public. So, you know, there are people... In that sense, you know, breaking the silence, there can be, and, and there, there has been in the past, maybe less in past years because of the dynamics of the conversation, but there were a lot of challenges to breaking the silence coming from the left uh, in the beginning. It wasn't a refusal organization. Soldiers were giving testimonies and going back to serve in reserves. So the uh, left wanted people to say, I won't serve. Yeah, and there have been refusal, refuser organizations in the past, quite impressive ones in Israel, but from left and from right at this point, that there are organizations which say our, our, our job is to get soldiers not to serve be it in the military entirely, or be it, you know, in reserve. So Breaking the Silence was not saying that. Uh, Breaking the Silence was also, um, uh, I would say, uh, uh, um, challenged on its militarism uh, and the fact that we weren't, um, we were, it, it was only an argument on, on specific behavior or on territories in general, but not a militaristic. So, so there was always um, challenges coming from there. Again, less heard today. And also it's overtly Zionist organization. Which is worth mentioning, and things which um, Super which don't get, uh, yeah, and you know, overtly Zionist in the sense that I would say, in sort of the basic common sense sense, even before we get into the ideologies, that it's people who are very um, happy <laughs> with the fact that they served in the Israeli Defense Forces. Um, so I would say Israeli public, and primarily um, what's known in Israel as Zionist left, uh, which is, you know, not a, a sizable group in Israel of uh, people who, who are engaged in the military but are, don't know how to make up their mind about the territories at this point. So that would be the audience. Um, regarding verifying, so yeah, so our, our sense was if we're able to, to prove or able to, in general, if we know that the soldier coming to us is, 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 what, is a real soldier and came to us as a soldier, we will listen to him, record their information. And if they're giving testimonies on something which isn't extremely uh, out there, and all these things are obviously pretty vague, uh, but I'd say if it's like, you know, stealing at a checkpoint or, or, you know, hitting somebody or something like that, we would publish. Uh, if we knew the guy really served where he did, because we knew, we, both because we saw ourselves as experts enough on the, you know, we were there ourselves, we knew a lot of other people, and we knew how commonplace uh, these issues were, and also because we believed the soldier and we felt that it's our civic duty to believe the soldier. If we uh, had a testimony of things which were, you know, more out of the ordinary, if it's killing or things of that nature, we would verify it. And I know that's still the practice in Breaking the Silent. They would verify it with two soldiers from the same unit who needed to be there. It's not hearsay and so on. 
All of that being said, it's still not a media organization. That's not to say, you know, media publishes, you know, problematic information all the time. But um, but from my perspective, it was never that was that was the professional standard. And I think that's a legitimate I still do. I think that's a legitimate um, standard for somebody who respects the voices of others coming from the military. Uh, and in general, you know, if an Israeli something, says something, I usually feel differently. If he says something about what's happening in Israel, I would feel differently. If an American says something, if a European says something. So likewise. So that's regarding the issue uh, of verifying the information. So let's go to funding. Funding. Uh, so also there, I mean, first of all, I do think there's a distinguish. One needs to distinguish between state funding and uh, and uh, NGO funding. And, NGO funding. Um, and we'll get into that for a second. Uh, so, I mean, f- for it's, you know, things like New Israel Fund, I mean, other than the fact that I completely identify on a personal level with the organization, it's pshita that there's no problem. It's a, you know, it's money coming from, from philanthropy and so on. Um, after saying that, um, I, I think we don't need to be naive about any side of the conversation. Um, everybody's being funded uh, by, a, by political actors from abroad. Uh, the right, the center, the left, the Zionist project, the whole thing is getting external money. Maybe that's a, by the way, I think that's a problem regardless of this conversation. I wish the Israeli philanthropy was more involved, but the the, the structure of uh, politics in this country uh, has and has always been even before the state. Um, so for, sorry for the sort of like very honest kind of case. No, no, look, I, think I think that's a that's, negative thing in general. No, but, that's but, totally um, fair. But I, mean, I think it's people a, that know Golda Meir's history. Right. And if you haven't read her biography yeah. by Francine Klagsbrunn called Lioness, it's definitely worth reading. And even Weitzman, you know, right. the whole I mean, all structure these was, started out as fundraisers, right. basically. Yeah, it's a very Jewish sort of, you know, like right. uh, and the relationship with. No, the, but with your Dash point Pertel. is very interesting. You made a couple of interesting points that I just want to kind of highlight for for the people that are listening. So one is that you actually believe that there was a very powerful impact on the military yeah. in a positive way, which I actually hadn't heard people say before. So I thought, that's, I thought that was very interesting. Uh, and then I thought also this notion that there wasn't an attempt to say we're going to use the Washington Post standard of journalistic yeah. whatever. We were doing something different. We yeah. were giving soldiers an opportunity to tell stories that we, we genuinely believe them. And Sure. I, can I want to also, and sorry to interrupt, but also in terms of the language, because I, I would never use like human rights language in the organization. It's not that something is defined as problematic by the fact that it, it's a, it runs against subsection this of some international. It just didn't feel right to the soldier. And that's worth for me being published. And that's a not that's not human rights or report. That's right. that's a very sort of internal communal way of, of doing politics. And I. And I really believe in that. I believe in that morally, you know. I, that's clear that you do, and okay. it's, it's, uh, it's no, it's just see it on your face when yeah. you're saying it. I mean, <laughs> sure. it's clear that you're talking from your heart. Uh, and the last point that you just mentioned that I also just want to reiterate for the clarity of people is that yeah, there's been a lot of criticism of, of breaking the silence uh, because of the kinds of funding the European Union, yeah. and et cetera, et cetera. And your point is okay, that's true. We did get money from there, but everybody's being funded from the outside. The right. entire Zionist enterprise yeah. is in large measure being funded from the outside. That's probably a little bit less true governmentally than it was 20, 30 years ago. Right. But it's definitely true for the NGO sector. And by the way, more and more also governmental money, because I made the distinction between the four. It is where, you know, if you if you look at sort of the turn, uh, as you know, things happening, just like just like in Israel, sometimes there's a right government and sometimes there's a left. Now there's a turn in right to the right in a lot of European countries. And you see foreign ministries of the right focused more, uh, when, uh, foreign ministries in, in Europe on the right focused more 
on different narratives and building different narratives or not funding certain things. So it's so also on the on the and, and maybe that's the last point in regarding the funding. For Israelis, this sometimes feels less comfortable, even for me. But the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is not an internal Israeli issue. It's an international issue in the sense that it's between us and another nation. So therefore, the involvement of the world is not sort of like... So always the argument is why, why are you know, different countries meddling in Israel's internal affairs? But it's not an internal affair in that sense. That is to say, that's not to say that it's that it's not problematic, and but not in the sense of the legitimacy. And here, I I, I, the, I think it's fair, it's legitimate. Again, my perspective. I do think, on the opposite, it does tend to depoliticize because uh, the language of European countries is sort of a non-political uh, language, and I feel actually much more comfortable in, in politics. This is you know breaking the silence takes a side or anything that I do today. Now, again, I've been out of the organization for over a decade, but anything that I do today takes a side. And, I, you know, I think it's fair to say that. So that's regarding the, the two first issues. The last is the issue of airing uh, dirty laundry. So here there's a biographical response and there's also um, a political response. The biographical response, I actually think, is important first. We started off with the decision that we won't talk outside of the country. Uh, so Breaking the Silence in the first years didn't publish anything at all uh, outside of the country, and God knows we were asked to. Uh, but the idea was this is an internal conversation. We're airing our dirty laundry, but we're doing it in the building, not in the, you know, in the, in the neighborhood. Um, and at a certain point, uh, we felt that a lot of the information that we were publishing, which we felt strongly about, uh, the Israel, a lot media didn't want to publish. Uh, and we understood that the only way to get the information out uh, was to publish it first abroad and then have Israel publish that. So that biographical response, and I think it's important to say, uh, you know, because that's one of the issues with dirty laundry is, you know, the, just like I'm very Israeli and Breaking the Sands is very Israeli, Israeli so is Yediot Achronot. They're also very Israeli and sometimes the information doesn't feel comfortable. And it was a controversial, even internally at the time, it was a controversial decision. And I think the minute that was open, uh, so the whole dynamic changed. I'm not saying that judgmentally at all in the organization. Probably if at the same time we would make the same decision, even in hindsight, I would make the same decision. Uh, But it did change, I think, the dynamic. Um, So that's answer number one. Answer number two is it's definitely an area which uh, Breaking the Silence gets much more uh, sort of uh, spotlight on is sort of the talking outside. But I think it does play a relatively peripheral role in the day to day of the organization. Um, And also, lastly, and this is just a question that I ask myself. um, Breaking the Silence was very controversial before it did it. Uh, And it was controversial for different reasons. And always it seems like the controversy changes based on what you're doing. So I don't know, there's a sort of question, if Breaking the Silence wasn't abroad, would it be less controversial? I'm not sure. I remember in the beginning we were challenged on the fact, you know, um, Israeli military wanted us to be a military unit. They wanted us to work. We said no, that was controversial. The testimonies were anonymous. Uh, That was controversial. So there's always a... I think it's a controversial organization. I would argue that I would like it to be an organization which nobody really likes. Um, I also don't, I, I feel that 
I feel uncomfortable when it's embraced by the center, but I also feel uncomfortable when it's embraced by the radical left. I think it's an organization which should make everybody feel uncomfortable. And that's why, you know, it's, you know, it's, it is what it is. It's, um, I left the organization in 2010, not from critique of any, any aspect of the organization. I was just, A, I was personally tired of, uh, of being in that position of, 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 of constantly being in sort of con- confrontational of anything. Uh, and second, because I felt that there needs to be, it needs to be an organization of people who just got out of the military in the sense that it needs, that element of controversy can only be kept with somebody who's in a way sort of like post-traumatic. Mm. Um, so for me, it just didn't make sense anymore. Uh, I hope those were fair answers to all your well, questions. Very fair answers. They're actually fascinating. So let's fast forward a little bit because you said something at the beginning of our conversation, which um, is definitely true, but I never thought about it in quite this way, which was that at the turn of the century, around 2000 and the next few years after that, getting out of land was part of the Israeli discourse. Yes. Right? So in 2000, we got out of Lebanon after being there for 18 years, right? The soldiers who, on those, you know, personnel characters who came across the thing and locked the lock on the chain link (laughs) fence were born just as we had gotten into Lebanon in 1982. Yeah. Uh, in 2005, as you pointed out, we got out of Gaza. So those were two major pullbacks. So there was a kind of a conversation in Israel about pulling back. I assume you'll agree with me that now we're in 2021, nobody's having that conversation. Right. I mean, we've had now four elections. Yeah. We may have actually gotten a government, we'll see. It's not there. Nobody talked about it. It was right. about Bibi's corruption. It was about Corona. It was about whatever it was. But literally, not in any of these four elections was occupation. Yeah, my getting... camp doesn't talk about it either. It's not like it's, it's right. coming. So we're not in. getting out yeah. of the. We're not getting out. Nobody's talking about getting out of there anytime future. I, I mean, I'll say this somewhat cynically and perhaps yeah. a tiny bit unfairly, <laughs> but there's no reason that you should be the only controversial person in the sure, conversation. No <laughs> I mean, the only people really talking about getting out of the territories, as the term, use the term yeah. that you were using before. Uh, are kind of American progressives. Yeah. I mean, they're having a conversation about getting out of the territories. But I would even argue to... that even they're not necessarily talking about it. They're talking about restructuring the whole sort of country to build something different. Correct. So. Now that's really moved. Yeah. You're right. That's moved beyond to sort of a one-state yeah. solution, yeah, which yeah, is yeah. no Jewish state anymore. I feel very old school. <laughs> well, we both sense. do. And yeah. even, you know, I'm in a different place than you a little bit. Yeah. But also the views that I have are really kind of not embraced in that world <laughs> sure. anymore either. So, okay. Well, let's just talk about 2021 for just a couple of minutes. What's your, I mean, you obviously have very serious moral concerns yeah. about what it means for Israeli soldiers to have control over the lives of millions of Palestinians. You right. pointed out before that you're an Orthodox Jew. Yeah. So for those people that don't necessarily know the intricacies of Israeli <laughs> history, I mean, you come in a fine tradition, for example, from Yisrael Leibovitz, yes. who was also a very Orthodox Jew who argued yeah. already in 1967, yeah. uh, get out of those territories because staying in is going to callous your soul. Right. He said, you occupy these people, and there were a lot less of them back then, yeah. you're going to destroy the soul of the state of Israel. And he became very controversial for until really until his death right. many years later. So you come from a long, you didn't make this up. You're not the first nope. Orthodox <laughs> Jew to have this position. There have been people before and there will be people after. God so we're talking, yeah, okay. <laughs> we're talking in 2021. What do you, as a Jew, as a Zionist, as a person who hates the idea of us militarily controlling another people, if you're, you're, you're I, I see your kids in shul, so I, yeah. I know the age that they are, more or less. So they're kind of young, the oldest is young teenager, right? I, right. I guess, right? Yeah. So she says to you, you know, one day during a weekday dinner or a Shabbat dinner, Abba, when I'm your age, 
which is 30, 25 years from now, let's yeah. say. Where, where is this going to be? What would you say to her? So I have sort of an optimistic response and a very pessimistic response. Uh, maybe I'll start with the pessimistic. Um, the pessimistic is that um, I'm acutely aware of the fact that occupation won't end primarily because of people such as myself, meaning it's, a, it's when people have power, they tend to use it. Uh, the idea that you you give up on a specific power that you have is, I think, even somewhat unnatural. Uh, I don't think I you know I don't think we're occupying occupying because we want to. I also don't think we're occupying because we need to. I think we're occupying at this point because we can because it's it's what we're doing. Uh, and I think the idea that we'll end it because of some moral claim that I'm making <laughs> that that's a really good moral claim. But I think the idea I think you know uh, I, I'm 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 not there. Uh, the pessimistic answer is, I think, um, it, it is, It is even though we don't see the violence of it, I think it's a very violent situation. And I think at this point, I believe it'll end violently, meaning I think at some point Palestinians will, will demand uh, independence in a way which is much less um, comfortable for us. Uh, and that's a very, very pessimistic thing to say. Uh, because the amount, I mean, even if you look at... So you at, mean like the third intifada that's just much more violent? Much more violent, yeah. And and and, it, and it's very sad for me, especially if it's a parent who lives here, you know, and it's something, it could happen in 20 years, it could happen in 150 years, but I think at some point uh, it'll happen. So that's the, the highly pessimistic response, but it's it's where I am. Um, the positive response is, is that I think that within sort of my national identity and my Zionist identity and my religious identity, I do think that that hope for um, that hope for uh, equality uh, is something which is very ingrained. And I think there is a sizable portion portion of Israeli public, Israeli Jews, who can identify with that. And I want to spell that out because I think that's for me that's important. I, I'll start with the Zionists. I, you know, I I come from a Zionist tradition. I see myself as Zionist, you know, without blinking. But I'm Zionist also in the sense that I that I'm a universal a universalist in the sense that I think we the Jewish people deserve political self determination just like any other people deserve self determination. And if I believe that, then we can't occupy permanently another people. We can occupy them temporarily, but we can't occupy them permanently. I mean, Zionism doesn't make sense for me if it's on the permanent disenfranchising of another people. And because of that, I'm interested in, in their independence because of my own sort of political understanding of, of my Zionism. On a religious uh, perspective, and that's why I wrote the book, I, I think there is a, I, I come from a great tradition, not only within sort of Leibovitch and in and, and, and modern Israel, but also in general, I think of a, it's not a pacifist tradition, but it's one which is skeptical of power and it's skeptical of, of what power can do to you. And I think that's very much ingrained in sort of the consciousness. So I'm, it depends on what morning I wake up. Sometimes I'm highly pessimistic and sometimes I say, hey, you know, we can do this. But I'm all of that. After all that being said, I'm really just happy to be part of. You know, you read these texts from 50 years ago and 70 years ago and people are saying, you know, this is our first, you know, first opportunity of the Jewish people to deal with these issues. So this is what it means, dealing with these issues. And dealing with these issues, I'm, I'm excited that I can be part of this conversation and that I have a say in that conversation. You know, it's not, like, it's not like the occupation will end and there'll be no problems. There's always going to be problems. And I'm happy to be part of that. Yeah. 
That's a beautiful way to put it. Uh, it's the messiness of history that sovereignty means you have to get yeah. involved with. And uh, to hear from someone like you who cares so deeply and is so articulate and has been so involved for so long is really a gift to everybody who hears this conversation, whether they agree or disagree. Sure. Everybody learns and uh, hopefully everybody walks away thinking. So I'm really very grateful to you for taking the time and for your forthrightness and your honesty. Hey, and, thanks uh, for the opportunity. And look forward to our next conversation. You've been listening to Israel from the Inside. Go to danielgordas.substack.com where you can hear more of these episodes. If you have ideas for topics you'd like us to explore, we'd love to hear from you. Until next time, I'm Daniel Gordas.